So our text this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, and I will be reading from chapter 1, verses 1, and then verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1. And verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God's with us. God is with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Father, help us as we meet you here today in your word. May your spirit grant us clear minds this morning to hear your word. Help us to put away the thoughts of the rest of our day. Grant us eyes that are anxious to see and hearts desiring to love and worship the triune God. In Christ's name, amen. So I think a good way to introduce this text this morning is to discuss Matthew's original audience. Why is Matthew writing this gospel? According to biblical scholars, his target audience is most likely recently converted Jews. Jews recently converted to Christianity. People who had left behind their long tradition of Judaism to become followers of Christ. Now, as we look around the scriptures, we see lots of places where when people are converted, entire households are converted. That would generally include the children, the parents, and any, any servants associated with the family. But what about brothers and sisters? What about close friends whom they used to worship with at the temple? What about the people that the family did business with? I'd say it's safe to say that the early Jewish converts must have stood out to other Jews. Can't you just hear the comments from friends and family members? You sold your birthright for a bowl of soup. What's wrong with you? We are the chosen race of Israel. Why would you forfeit that? This Jesus is no Messiah. He's the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. Have you not understood the Torah? Have no other gods before me. Look at what you've done to your family and to your reputation. Return now to the law of Moses before God himself strikes you down. 
Imagine the family get-togethers. You can understand why the early Jewish Christians might have struggled with their newfound faith. Matthew writes to assure them through numerous direct Old Testament quotes that this Jesus is in fact the real deal. He is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited king that the people had dreamed about for hundreds of years. And Matthew shows repeatedly how Jesus fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. He demonstrates to the people that their newfound faith rests securely in the finished work of Christ, not in their works of the law. He gave God's people precisely what he knew they needed. Assurance, reassurance of who they really were. God's own redeemed people. Now many of us today or in the days past have already gathered with family and friends to celebrate Christmas. And it's possible that we will have family or friends that might not agree with our Christian beliefs. Some of them may privately laugh behind our backs Others may be more vocal and voice their disdain. And still yet others, man, eh, to each his own. Whatever. Doesn't bother me. We've all heard the statements and maybe even uttered them ourselves at one time or another. I don't need church. It's a place full of hypocrites. They just want your money. I can't believe you fall for that stuff. And what about you? You forget, I know who you are. I know where you come from. I know your past. Now that's a statement that might strike a little fear in your heart. Maybe even cause you to start questioning yourself. I know who I am too. I know where I've been. I know where I come from. I know how I feel sometimes and the thoughts I can have that I wouldn't want anyone else to know. If anyone from church had seen me yesterday or seen the thoughts in my head, I'd be so embarrassed. I couldn't face them. Well, I have a little surprise for you this morning. Our focus is not going to be so much on the text I read you. as it is the text right before it. You see, I think if I had started reading you this genealogy that covers 17 verses, I might have lost you about halfway through. It is a long list of names. In fact, the Bible contains multiple genealogies. Anybody read the first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles? (laughs) Name after name after name for nine chapters. One generation after another. But they're important. But if we're honest, don't we usually kind of skip over those? Looking for the meat and the potatoes? Well, let's consider Matthew's account of Jesus' family tree. Now, you'll note, the Bible scholars among you, that it is different from Luke's account. 
That's because Matthew is a different person, and he's writing to a different audience, and he has a different theological goal. Don't get wrapped up in that. <coughs> Matthew's genealogy spans much of the history of the nation of Israel's, about 16 to 1800 years. Now, genealogies are pretty significant to the Hebrews, as you can see by the number of times they appear in the Bible. It's essential. It was essential to know where you came from, whose ancestry you are part of, what tribe of Israel you descended from. It said a lot about who you were. A genealogy was something to be proud of. In fact, you might be so proud of your genealogy that as you made it, y'all know you got black sheep in your family, right? Everyone does. So I think when I make my genealogy, I'm going to skip those people. I, I don't need to put them in there because they're going to tarnish my reputation, make the family look bad. It was not an uncommon practice. If you're trying to show a pure bloodline, you might need to cull a few of the rascals out of that line before you put them papers out. So first we read a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In verse 1, Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is a child of Abraham. And therefore, Jesus is a part of that covenant promise as an Israelite. God's promise to Abraham was what? That his descendants would have a land and that the descendants would outnumber the sand on the seashore and that those descendants would bless the world. And Jesus is also a descendant, Matthew tells us, of David, King David, qualifying him as the Messiah because of the, the prophets declared. Second Samuel declares that the scepter will never depart your throne. Matthew is setting the stage. So far, so good. Abraham, King David... That's pretty good stock, right? If you're establishing a bloodline, that's a pretty good start. But as we get into this genealogy, uh, let's just look. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. A woman? In the genealogy? We don't do that in Jewish genealogies. Old Testament women rarely mention. And here we have Tamar. Matthew puts her in there for a reason, doesn't he? He's calling our attention to something. Now you may not remember the story of Tamar, so let me refresh your memory. from the book of Genesis, Judah had three sons. His oldest son's name was Ur, and Tamar became his wife. But the Bible says that God put Ur to death because he was wicked. So according to custom, the next brother in line's responsibility was to marry and bear children with her. Then the children she bore would be considered children of her first husband. 
to continue his line. Now, being married and having a child would also bring honor to Tamar, Tamar, because being childless was a great shame in that culture. But brother number two said, I'm not going to do it. It won't be my children. It'll be my brother's children. God put him to death. So then Judah pledges to give his youngest son, who's way too young to be getting married at that point. But when he grows up, he'll be your husband. But Judah didn't follow, follow along with that because Tamar seemed like a death sentence to the sons. So Judah left Tamar in shame, unwanted, unmarried, and with no children. Fast forward several years, Judah's wife dies, and during his time of grieving, he went to town to shear sheep. Tamar hears of this, and she dresses like a prostitute, and she catches him on the road. Judah propositioned her, and she ends up having children with her father-in-law, Perez and Zerah. Perez ends up being in the family tree of Jesus. And you thought you had skeletons in your closet. Not a very flattering lineage for king, now is it? Nothing you'd want to put in your family tree, is it? Let's gloss over those skeletons. They're not important. Matthew goes out of his way to draw our attention to this. Let's move on to the next one. And I'll try and tie those two together. In verse 3, Perez Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Here we go again. Rahab, what's she doing here? Do you remember Rahab? Let me remind you who Rahab was. Well, she was a Canaanite. Is, is there something else that stands out? Oh, yeah, she was a prostitute. living in the town of Jericho just before the Israelites come in to conquer the land. The land. So Rahab has two strikes against her, her profession and her nationality. Her profession was definitely against God's law, and God would ultimately destroy the Canaanite people because of their wickedness. And he was going to give their land to the Israelites. God had promised Abraham that 400 years earlier that he would do this for Abraham's descendants. God also told the Israelites no intermixing with the Canaanites. Not good. So the Israelites, Joshua sends spies in to the land to check out Jericho. And they're discovered But God directs them to the home of Rahab who protected them at risk to herself because she knew, she had heard about the God of Israel and she knew that he would prevail. And sure enough, the spies make it back to camp and tell all these stories. And eventually the people of Israel gather their courage and march around the walls of Jericho. 
for seven days. You know the story. And they blow the horns and the walls come down. And only one family was saved. And that was Rahab's family. God protected her because she believed in the power of God. She trusted God. She trusted the God of the Israelites. And she demonstrated her meager faith by protecting God's people. And even though she was a Canaanite, even though she worked in a profession not a good one, God saved her. And not only did he save her, but after this encounter, apparently, she marries an Israelite. They have children and lived a God-fearing life. I think if you look in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, you might even see her name in the heroes of faith. Now, what do these two women teach us about God and this child, Jesus, who is about to enter the world? Well, obviously, Matthew is showing us that God can take the unlikeliest of people and the worst situation and turn them around. And use them for his purpose. Sounds like Romans 8.28, doesn't it? God works for the good of those who love him. All things. For those who have been called according to his purpose. See, God loves and cares for his people. And if God can save a Canaanite prostitute and turn her life around. And use her. He can take any one of us and do the same thing. If he can take a relationship fiasco like Tamar's and use her child as an ancestor in the king's lineage, God can handle your family tree too. He can handle your problems. See, I think Matthew's setting the stage for this coming Jesus, that God was sending the infant Messiah to save his people and that's why he was named Jesus, which means the Lord saves. We heard that earlier. He would bring those who are from, far from God near to him. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your heritage is. It doesn't matter what your bloodline is. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. Jesus Christ came to transform your life and to restore you to relationship with the triune God. To turn your heart to God. He brings healing. He restores relationships. He sets our path straight. He takes our mistakes and our waywardness and accomplishes good through them. God passionately cares about us. The purpose of sending Jesus was to save people, not just the Jews, from sins in our past. As Herman Bovink said, Jesus came to make the invisible God fully visible to you and I, and that is good news. Let's look at the genealogy some more. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Here we go again. Another lady in the king's ancestry. Do you remember the story of Ruth? She has a whole book of the Bible named after her. Begins with the woman named Naomi. Traveled with her husband and sons from Bethlehem in Israel to a country east of the Jordan River called Moab 
to escape a a famine. And while they're living in Moab, Naomi's sons marry Moabite women, foreigners. Naomi's husband dies. Both sons die, leaving Naomi with two daughter-in-laws. No sons, no men. Their names were Orpah and Ruth. One of the daughters, Orpah, decides, back home I go. This is no life for me. But Ruth, the other daughter-in-law, loved Naomi so much. She went with Naomi back to her land, where you go, I go, to her people. The God whom you worship, I will worship. So they head back with nothing, and when they arrive in Bethlehem, in the area, it's harvest time. And the only way they were able to survive was to rely on the kindness of the landowners who would let them go and pick up scraps after the workers had harvested. And it just so happens that a relative of Naomi's, Boaz, allowed Ruth to pick scraps from his fields. And he offered her protection. And soon after, we discover that Boaz falls into the role of the kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer was a relative who could buy back one's property in their family name so that the relative no longer lived like a slave or in poverty like Ruth and Naomi were. It was like purchasing their freedom. Boaz offered to redeem Naomi's property and to take Ruth as his wife. Matthew doesn't mention Ruth by accident. He wants us to see in Jesus' family tree, we see God, the kinsman redeemer. God redeems people. He purchases our freedom. He cares about the foreigner. He cares about the widow. He cares about the poor. And he cares about the lost. He seeks to purchase freedom, restore relationships. In Jesus, God's eternal plan was coming together. And by sending his son to earth to redeem us, to purchase our freedom, to set us free from our sin, from our self-centeredness, from our pride, from our hatred, from violence and brokenness, to restore us to wholeness. He came as Emmanuel. He came to be God with us in this room right now, today, in your life, through the Spirit within you when you walk out of the door here today. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And again in Titus chapter 2, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, a people eager to do what is good. And in Ephesians, but now you belong to Christ Jesus, though you were once far away from God, now you have been brought near to him because of the blood of Christ. God is so rich in kindness that he purchased our freedom 
through the blood of his son. There's a mention in this genealogy of the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Does that ring any bells with anybody? You remember her story? Remember the king on the roof? Ooh. Bathsheba. When David lusts after her, and she consents to his lust. And through this act, she becomes pregnant. This woman has a husband named Uriah, who is where? He's out fighting on behalf of King David. So now David has a problem. So he brings Uriah home on a little leave. Go see your wife. Well, you can kind of figure out for yourself what's going on there. Uriah says, no. I'm a soldier. I'm a warrior. I need to be on the battlefield. So what does David do? He has Uriah murdered. So that nobody will find out what he's done. And yet later, this same woman would bear another son. And his name would be Solomon. He replaces David on the throne. And what about this Mary, this young girl, betrothed to Joseph? They show up to the family because there's a census. Nobody's got pictures of Mary. They, didn't, they couldn't send them on a cell phone. Imagine their shock when Mary shows up. She's pregnant. They're not even married yet. Can't you just imagine the conversations they had behind Joseph and Mary's back? You imagine the stares, the looks, or if Mary happened to look at them, that dropping of the eyes so as not to make eye contact. Imagine Joseph trying to explain to his family what was going on. Would you believe it? Just look at the ancestry of Jesus. Abraham lied about his wife and put her in a compromising position. Judah committed incest. David, an adulterer and a murderer. Solomon, a polygamist. Rehoboam despised God's people. Abijah, his son, walked in the sins of his father. Joram walked in the ways of Ahab. Ahaz, a prideful idolater. A woman who slept with her father-in-law while pretending to be a prostitute. A woman who was a prostitute. A woman who was a foreigner and whose people served other gods. An adulterous woman whose husband died as a result of her sin. And this girl who became pregnant before she was even married. 
mal, mal, mal. Mm, mm, mm. God gave a struggling, fledgling church exactly what they needed. At the exact time, through the hand of Matthew, he gave them his word. He gave them himself. In the scriptures, God has promised to meet us in three places. In prayer, in word, and in sacrament. And that is what we believe as Presbyterians. We believe that promise and we hold it dearly. God gave them his word. He met them in his word. He meets you and I in his word. He meets us in our prayers. He meets us when we take communion here. He meets us when we baptize someone here. He's promised to. James tells us that every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. And on this day, today, we remember the birth of our Savior. We remember when light came into the darkness. And there was a day in your life, you may remember it, you may not, when light came into your darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. Today, perhaps in the coming days and months, you might encounter family, friends, acquaintances who disagree with your Christian beliefs. Their words may challenge you when they tell you, I know who you are. I know who you really are. Their words and actions may cause fear and doubt to rise in your soul. Christ knows your past too. He's walked with you in your past. He's walking with you today and he will walk with you tomorrow. Christ knows who you are. Christ the King has overcome your past. He's defeated your shame and he is there through the Spirit to heal and to bind our wounds. He did not die on a cross so that you and I <coughs> would remain captive to sin. He died to set us free. That's exactly what He's done for you if you're in Christ. And every one of us in this room will fall, and He will be there to pick us up time and time again. And as He raises you up each time, repent, confess your sins, and rejoice in His goodness. There's no reason to be chained to our past. If you are in Christ, brothers and sisters, you now have the greatest ancestry anyone could imagine. You are, in fact, a child of the eternal King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. As Pastor Keith told us last night, we have been granted the greatest gift ever. Cherish it, relish it, and rejoice in it. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in your wisdom you commanded us to gather in your presence where you have promised to meet us through your word. Father, may we take these words with us into our day. 
May these words bury themselves deep in our heart as we marvel and glory at Christ. Amen.